Welcome to the Zanzizi Podcast. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I'm with my main man, Danger Zone, coming in with some Chevelle just to honor my guest. Yeah, man, I wish I could hear it. I know. You'll hear it on the episode <laughs> when you listen. Yeah, um, I, love that. I love that song. Yeah, dude. Yeah, dude. Anyway, holy crap. <laughs> Here we are, doing the thing. A long time coming. I, f- I feel like we've kind of hinted around us, covering Mr. Andrew James Jackson. But here we are. We're on top of it. AJ, squared away, some would say. I will say a lot of things today. Um, you say. <laughs> old like Hickory. By the bay. <laughs> Old hit some hay. <laughs> Old uh, Hickory is an interesting, an interesting, interesting, interesting character. Um, this isn't gonna be like the. Uh, I'm playing some 1800s music, so we got a little Mozart. Since he did, he was born in the 1800s era. And, it's weird how you have to say 1756 is still in the 1800s. I don't know, man. I didn't make the numbers systems up. Or I'm not the Dewey Decimal guy, all right? Anyway, here we are. We're going to talk about Andrew Jackson. We're just going to get right the fuck into it so we're not here for five days. But essentially, we did the research on this. Do you have anything... What, what, did you learn what did what do you feel like you learned during this sesh anything interesting like any any takeaways about this era but before civil war post 1812 war which we talked about or even going into the late 1780s 1790s well i think we covered a lot of it going into the war of 1812 i mean it uh, jackson you know played a uh, a big role towards the end of that. So we kind of touched on him during the 1812 episode, but um, going into his presidency and, you know, just the events that transpired during that and learning more about him as a person, um, you know, that's the fun thing about doing these is you get to, you know, do a little deep dive and, you know, learn about the person himself. And, and yeah, he was a, he definitely was a character. Um, the some, I think the the nullification crisis, which we'll get into. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't realize. You asked me what I learned. I I think that was uh, something that I knew about, but I didn't realize how close it was to being like the actual civil war. Civil oh yeah. War. Oh yeah. 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 <clears throat> you, so you can was, blame that on the uh, Calhouns. Um, but we'll get into that. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of. I'll say this. Uh, a populist president, probably our first populist president, used media really when it was just just starting. Like the idea of sending a picture nowadays or a meme or a screenshot is just it's it's all the time in the world we're living in. But at this time, it was like, holy shit, do you see this? And like hold up a new a crinkled newspaper with like a faded artist rendering that they could just at the time figure out how to press onto a piece of paper and it's like 
I can see old Hickory and he's beating back the Brits in New Orleans, you know, like, and as we said in the 1812, it was a motley crew. We got Indians, we got pirates, we got black people, you know, they're like, hey, am I going to get to shoot some, shoot some, some other oppressive white people? And old Hickory said, sure thing, buddy, get in there, buckaroo. I mean, uh, interesting guy. Uh, we'll get into it. His family were a bunch of immigrants from Ireland. He was born March 15th, 1767. Or, yeah, 1767. So he's a Pisces, March 15th, for all those who care. In the Waxhaws region of the Carolinas. And as I said, his parents were of Irish descent they were i mean this is this is early early i would even consider i mean this is a colonial time i'm sorry they were scott irish colonists colonists andrew jackson and elizabeth hutchinson presbyterians who had emigrated from the ulster ireland from Ulster in 1765. Jackson's father was born in Carrickfergus County, Antrim, around 1738, and his ancestors had crossed into Northern Ireland from Scotland after the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Jackson had two older brothers who came from his parents who came with his parents from Ireland, Hugh, born 1763, and Robert, born 1764. So they had these babies, bam, 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 right in a row. Jackson's exact birthplace is unclear. Jackson's father died at the age of 29 in a logging accident. Like, literally, he was lifting a log and went, Bleh! which is a hell of a way to go. In fact, things were a little, uh, I mean, little... Little crazy back in the day. Uh, I read an account that said that at his funeral, the uh, the funeral party, or I guess the guys carrying the casket, got so shit faced they brought the they brought the coffin to the wrong spot. <laughs> yeah, I think I read that too, or heard it, or something yeah. in the in one of the YouTube's. That's I'm, hilarious. It it, it kind of gives you a sign of how organized things were back in the day but they um afterwards elizabeth hutchinson and her three sons moved in with her sister and brother-in-law jane and james crawford jackson later stated that he was born on the crawford plantation which is in lancaster county south carolina but secondhand evidence suggests that he might have been born at another's uncle's home in north carolina when jackson was young elizabeth taught thought he might become a minister and paid to have him schooled by a local clergyman. He learned to read, write, and work with numbers and was exposed to Greek and Latin, but he was too strong-willed and hot-tempered for the ministry. He also had, like, a drooling problem, and he was, like, angry all the time. It sounds like uh, the the ghost episode we did. I think uh, one of the ones was, like, Andrew Jackson just, like, walking around the White House grunting and farting and... Andrew Jackson. So yeah, that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> I, I the the one representation of what he would have sounded like 
kind of affixed him with like a southern accent, which I guess I would understand. But his family being all from Ireland, I gotta imagine there's a bit of a like like a a gruff fighting Irishy spirit that probably permeated into his his world. But anyway, um he yeah, he had a bit of a drooling problem. They were also pretty sure that the water that he drank was contaminated because he had like a lifelong problem with, uh, we'll say, uh, tapeworms. And uh, <laughs> how do you get this information before we do these things? Hey, dude, I tell you, I do my own research too. I mean, like, I, you know, I'm not I, telling I you he was making. I, I never heard, seen or read or nothing saying. Andrew Jackson had tapeworms. I mean, I can't believe that the water was very clean back then for a lot of people. Look, sure man. A lot of people had tapeworms. All... <laughs> that's, My that's tapeworm just... tells me what to do. I mean, look, he had, he had, he had, he had. That was a system of a down reference, everybody. Yep, future episode. So the thing about it with, with, with the, the, what I'm saying here is you got to connect the dots a little bit. I mean, we'll get into it. The, um, he also had a chronic diarrhea, so but we'll get into that. That's part of how he rode his horse because he was always leaning forward because his asshole was always burning. So Jackson and his older brothers, Hugh and Robert, served on the Patriot side against British forces during the American Revolutionary War. Hugh served under Colonel William Richardson... Richardson Davy dying from heat exhaustion after the Battle of Stono Ferry in June 1779. After anti-British set sentiment intensified in the southern colonies following the Battle of Waxhaws in May 1780, Elizabeth encouraged Andrew and Robert to participate in militia drills. They served as couriers and were present at the Battle of Hanging Rock in August 1780. Andrew and Robert were captured in April 1781 when the British occupied the home of a Crawford relative. A British officer demanded to have his boots polished. Andrew refused, and the officer slashed him with a sword, leaving him with scars on his left hand and head. Robert also refused and was struck a blow on the head. The brothers were taken to a prisoner of war camp in Camden, South Carolina, where they became malnourished in contact uh, contracted smallpox. In late spring, the brothers were released to their mother in a prisoner exchange. Robert died two days after arriving home, but Elizabeth was able to nurse Andrew back to health. Times it, were tough. It, it, it had to have been the worst time ever to grow up. Like as a kid, you got diarrhea, dysentery, cholera, tapeworms. Uh, Tapeworms, uh, smallpox, uh, just rabies. I don't know. Everybody's just. I don't know about you, but it sounds like the life of a model or an international model. And at the time, we have a fresh start. We're out here. We're like, fuck the Brits. But I, I want to say this <clears throat> there is something you have to really um, take into exchange. And it, when you th when we talk about this time specifically, and it, it, well, a lot of it was in the book I was reading. I, I brought it up before, but I don't have it down here in front of me. Spe specifically breaking down like the temperament pre-revolutionary war and even during. 
Um, basically what Britain and, and America were going through was like a divorce. And we were going back and forth. And it was like the dumb, you, you, the kids were there and we're trying not, we'll say the, we'll, the, we'll say the, the small minded individuals were like, but, but, but mother England and, and, and we want to, we want this to be England too. And we're like, no, we got a fresh start. We got plenty of land. We can, we can farm. We can, it's not piss raining all the time. We don't have to stop and have tea every five minutes. Like we can get shit done. And it was, it was a push pull thing. And it wasn't, again, like most things in life, it didn't happen right away. It had to happen over time for us to gain our independence from, from Europe and from England. So there, there were things that had to happen kind of slow and steadily, but, um, there was always like, even up until like 18, 1812, I think England essentially was embarrassed by us. And then they were probably had a war boner after Napoleon. And we're like, you know what? Fuck those guys. And we showed them what? And that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, maybe Canada did. I don't know. What do you think, Boardman? All right. So, like I said, they, they, he, I had always heard that Andrew Jackson, like, they were like, like his stuff, historians and documentaries being like, he never, he was never really, he had no military training. I mean, all this stuff to me, that seems like prime, like experience that you would want on a resume for somebody who's going to end up being so like, he's a prisoner, you know, he's part of a militia. I, I, I understand the idea of a militia being kind of crazy. I mean, I also understand how bewildering it must have been for the Brits when some guy running through the <laughs> running through the brambles with a coonskin cap on and he's like, by God, that's not the that's not the way we parlay on the field. Meanwhile, we're just hocking fucking spears at them and making booby traps. They're like, and get on their boat and go back and eat fish and chips. But um, did you ever have a? Did you ever have a raccoon hat? No, I did. I grew up come in. On, man, come on, dude. You you out? You're out there like. I. It was the it was the raccoon fur hat with the tail on the back. It, Daniel Boone shit. Or Davy Crockett. One of the two. Davy Crockett, I think. Hey man, I think that was you're the coolest thing in the world. I think you're co- the coolest dude in the world. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, um, so once he recovered, Elizabeth volunteered to nurse American prisoners of war housed in British prison ships in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. Unfortunately, she contracted cholera, cholera, and died soon afterwards. The war not only made Jackson an orphan at age 14, but led him to despise values he associated with Britain, in particular, in particular aristocracy and political privilege, which will definitely play a part as we go through this. I also want to say that Jackson was raised his mother by his mother basically always, always speaking ill of the Native Americans. His mother specifically saw them as, you know, savages 
and that would also play a role in him because like most of these guys most of these guys we've covered going even back to say Teddy Roosevelt they were quite fond of their mothers um after the American Revolutionary War, Jackson worked as a saddler, briefly returned to school, and taught reading and writing to children. In 1784, he left the Waxhaws region for Salisbury, North Carolina, where he studied law under attorney Spruce McKay. A lot of these guys start out as lawyers. He completed his training under John Stokes and was admitted to the North Carolina Bar in September 1787. Shortly thereafter, his friend John McNary helped him get appointed as a prosecuting attorney in the Western District of North Carolina, which would later become the state of Tennessee. While traveling to assume his new position, Jackson stopped in Jonesboro. While there, he bought his first slave, a woman who was around his age. He also fought his first duel... And believe me, there are many. Some historians say up to 103, which just plays into the idea of him being angry and drooly, and that tapeworm was really pissing him off. Yeah, that's a lot of duels. I I know there's a range depending on what source that you get the information from, but could you imagine if our politicians still dueled? We get a lot more you done. Think, you think if uh, if that was a possibility, do you think there would be so much chaos that there is? Well, I would if, almost if, if like if people in Congress, like last week, right? There was that you know uh, that that senator from Oklahoma, and he wanted to fight the guy from the union, mm-hmm. like on the Senate floor, like right. And so that's like that was about a lot of drama. But like, imagine if they actually had to go out and like duel twenty four feet. <laughs> Pace, you know, pace it off and take a shot. <clears throat> it's just, it's wild to me to think that was the way it was. It is. I mean, 200 years ago, you could, theoretically, if somebody pissed you off, you, you would, you could ask to duel. I mean, do you think in your life, if we were living in a time where dueling was an option, you would have been in a duel at this point? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a good possibility. I, <laughs> I love the the giggle on your face. I mean, you're like, I think at first you were gonna be like, no, oh, there was that one time. Yeah, probably at some point. But your mentality is probably different than than it is now, right? It's not something that you. It's not your go to response to. Uh, you know, you get in a fist fight or something like that. It's not like. Okay, let's uh, take a shot at each other from 24 feet. I'll tell you what, one of those nights in in, uh, in the Navy, me and Daw would have put a bullet in each other at some point. <laughs> oh, God. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, it, I, he would have been the guy that would have threatened, but then like ran away every time. I don't um, doubt it. It, it, it. Yeah, he was a hothead trying to come at me that one time in Reykjavik. About oh. the uh, w- Wizard of Oz shit. Old Hickory, old Hickory <sighs> Daw. Um, anyway, so um, now this first duel, um, he fought his first duel accusing another lawyer, Wegg Still Avery, of impugning his character. The duel ended with both men firing in the air. And actually, it ended most duels when 
they fired on each other and missed. Like, they basically shook hands and were like friends afterwards. Something about being that close to death, I guess, just brought dudes to be bros. It was gentlemanly. Gentlemanly. Jackson began his new career in the frontier town of Nashville in 1788 and quickly moved up in social status. He became a protege of William Blount, one of the most powerful men in the territory. Jackson was appointed attorney general of the Metro District in 1791 and judge advocate for the militia the following year. He also got involved in land speculation, eventually forming a partnership with fellow lawyer John Overton. The partnership mainly dealt with claims made under a land grab act of 1783 that opened Cherokee and Chickasaw territory to North Carolina's white residents. And we're going to see that ramp up ramp up while boarding at the home of rachel stockley donaldson the widow of john donaldson jackson became acquainted with their daughter rachel donaldson robards the younger rachel was in an unhappy marriage with captain lewis robards and the two were separated by 1789 after the separation jackson and rachel became romantically involved living together as husband and wife Robards petitioned for divorce, which was granted on the basis of Rachel's infidelity. The couple legally married in January of 1794. In 1796, they acquired their first plantation, Hunter's Hill, on 640 acres of land near Nashville. Tennessee. Um, so, That's so, a lot of property, man. I, what I didn't quite mention is... <clears throat> Her marriage was to a drunken uh, serviceman who was very abusive. And at the time, divorce was very taboo. Even Like, now it, it just happens on the regular. Like, it's almost hardly... It's like a parking ticket. It happens so often for people. But, like, in this situation, like, people generally didn't live very long and most of the time it was like a it was like considered more more of a heresy than even like multiple duels in Andrew Jackson's case and and this is going to come back in a big way later on Jackson became a member of the Democratic Republican Party the dominant party in Tennessee he was elected as a delegate to the Tennessee Constitutional Convention in 1796 when Tennessee achieved statehood that year, he was elected to its U.S. representative. So, Jackson wasn't the type of guy to want to be, like, by all accounts, I don't think he was necessarily the one that wanted offices unless le legitimately he felt like there could be a change made. If that makes any sense, I feel like, and especially during this time, the idea of the general population deciding who the president was, wasn't desirable, especially to the top brass and or, you know, elites of the social structures. Andrew Jackson, in many ways, was kind of, and by the standards of, say, like the common folk, seen as this guy who really kind of made his way through life. I mean, he was an orphan. 
at 14. His dad died young. So for him, it just seemed like he was, you know, like the pauper who, who, or by the, by the standard of, you know, the saying, like, pull himself up by his bootstraps, if you will. He, he is a, he's very, he's very interesting when you compare him to say like the founding fathers or even future presidents we have. He, um, In Congress, Jackson argued against the Jay Treaty, criticized George Washington for allegedly removing Democratic Republicans from public office, and joined several other Democratic Republican congressmen in voting against a resolution of thanks for Washington. So he's taking a hard stance here, folks. He advocated for the right of Tennesseans to militarily oppose Native American interests. The state legislature elected him to be a U.S. senator in 1797, but he resigned after only serving six months. So when he gets these positions, like these minor, I guess in his mind, minor positions of like senator or Congress dude, he specifically is not enthused by them because it feels like he's not the type of guy who wants to, to... sit in and mingle he wants to like get shit done which feels like points jackson in my book you know i'd rather you know i don't like to go to band practice so i can sit and play my fucking phone candy crush games i want to actually pick up my guitar and get shit done um now we're gonna get into a bit of his career leading up to his presidency, but do you have anything you want to interject about this early era? Um, no, I, I, there was a, there was kind of a gap in what I looked at and, uh, I know he, uh, you know, like you mentioned, he did the Congress thing and, and he, he got appointed like district attorney and he just, all the time he was just getting appointed to things. So I, yeah, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of information going up into the war of 1812. So upon returning, um, upon returning to Tennessee, Jackson was elected as a judge of the Tennessee superior court in 1802. He also became major general or commander of the Tennessee militia a position that was determined by a vote of the militia's officers. The vote was tied between Jackson and John Sevier, a popular revolutionary war veteran and former governor, but the governor Archibald Roan broke the tie in Jackson's favor. Jackson later accused Sevier of fraud and bribery. Sevier responded by impugning Rachel's honor, resulting in a shootout on a public street. Soon afterwards, they met to duel, but parted without having fired at each other. So, another duel. And a sign of things to come, because people, when they would find out that Rachel was previously married, would lose their fucking brain cells. Because, to them, you only married one 14-year-old girl, got her pregnant by 16, and then you were both dead by 30. So this didn't make any sense to them. The, a woman having another man? 
By God. It's unheard of. So Jackson resigned his judgeship in 1804. He had almost gone bankrupt when the credit he used for land speculation collapsed in the wake of an earlier financial panic. He had to sell Hunter's Hill as well as 25,000 acres of land he bought for speculation and bought a smaller 420-acre plantation near Nashville that he would call the Hermitage. And we're going to be coming back to there much later on, but he focused on recovering from his losses by becoming a successful planner and merchant. The Hermitage would grow to a thousand acres, making it one of the largest cotton growing plantations in the state. Like most planners in the southern United States, Jackson used slave labor. In 1804, Jackson had nine African American slaves. By 1820, he had over a hundred. And by his death in 1845, he had over 150 slaves. Over his lifetime, he owned a total of 300 slaves. Jackson subscribed to the paternalistic idea of slavery, which claimed that slave ownership was morally acceptable as long as slaves were treated with humanity and their basic needs were cared for. In practice, slaves were treated as a form of wealth whose productivity needed to be protected. Jackson directed harsh punishment for slaves who disobeyed or ran away. For example, in an 1804 advertisement to recover a runaway slave, he offered $10 extra for every 100 lashes any person will give him. Up to 300 lashes, a number that would likely have been deadly, Jackson also participated in the local slave trade over time. His acclamation of wealth in both slaves and land placed him among the elite families of Tennessee. So you could say Andrew Jackson didn't get where he was without being a cotton plantation owning slave master. Negative points, Jackson. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a common theme back then. So we're going to get into the duel he had with Charles Dickinson. Um, I'd always heard that he was quite the dually guy, um, probably more than most. Pre- I don't see a lot about John Quincy Adams or even Martin Van Buren or our friend the ghost upstairs in the attic, President Harrison. No, because I think, uh, at least Adams, maybe Van Buren, I don't know. They were considered the uh, the upper class, the elite. That was uh, probably, I don't know, was that something that the uh, high society did, duel? Or was that just left to the... I think it was more the cowboys and less of the nerds. The cowboys are the ones <laughs> yeah. that are spouting their mouths off, you know? In May 1806, Jackson fought a duel with Charles Dickinson. They had gotten into an argument over a horse race, and Dickinson allegedly uttered a slur against Rachel. During the duel, Dickinson fired first, and the bullet hit Jackson in the chest. The wound was not life-threatening because the bullet had shattered against his breastbone. Jackson returned fire and killed Dickinson. The killing tarnished Jackson's reputation. That's pretty badass, though. You get shot, and you just go, ugh. Bitch. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's really crazy how a bullet enters your body. <clears throat> Not to get off subject, but uh, 
you know, I, I shot that uh, on opening day. I shot that deer mm-hmm. um, last week or a couple weeks ago. And uh, the bullet, the entry wound, <clears throat> where it went through the skin and where it went through, I shot him in the ribs. It was like two inches. Like it goes through the skin and then it ricochets and goes through there. So it, I can see that happening with, especially back in the day with those old soft bullets. You know, yeah, the muskets, you know, the bullets were just like... This bullet's made from half of my tooth and a piece of gum and some foil. Um, well, you see you see in the uh, in the uh, the Patriot where uh, Mel, one of the, was it Mel Gibson, he's melting down the little toy soldier thing. It probably weighs about an ounce. Mm-hmm. No, that's not uh, for his, you know, musket ball. It's not really... Uh, high lethal bullet i would imagine i mean yeah i wouldn't like hit by it no uh, it's like it's somebody got a bb <laughs> gun it's like i don't want to get shot with it but it's not going to kill you um so later in the year jackson became involved in former vice president aaron burr's plan to conquer spanish florida and drive the spanish from texas burr who was touring with what was then the Western United States after mortally wounding Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Mm-hmm. Aaron Burr. We talked about him before. Thomas Jefferson's VP. Burr, who was touring, uh, yeah, stayed with the Jacksons at the Hermitage in 1805. He eventually persuaded Jackson to join his adventure. In October 1806, Jackson wrote James Winchester that the United States, quote, can conquer not only Florida, but all Spanish North America. He informed the Tennessee militia that it should be ready to march at a moment's notice when the government and and constituted authority of our country require it, unquote, and agreed to provide boats and provisions for the expedition. Jackson sent a letter to President Thomas Jefferson telling him that Tennessee was ready to defend the nation's honor. Jackson also expressed uncertainty about the enterprise. He warned the governor of Louisiana, William Claiborne, and Tennessee Senator Daniel Smith that some of the people involved in the venture might be intending to break away from the U.S. In December, Jefferson ordered Burr to be arrested for treason. Jackson, safe from arrest because of his extensive paper trail, organized the militia to capture the conspirators. He testified before a grand jury in 1807, implying that it was Burr's associate, James Wilkinson, who was guilty of treason, not Burr. Burr was acquitted of the charges. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't didn't know any of that. Well, I will say this. It's... To a certain extent, I feel like Andrew Jackson was loyal to his friends. And we'll get into Van Buren and um, the Eaton affair when we get to it. But on June 18th, 1812, the United States declared war in the United Kingdom. Though the War of 1812 was primarily caused by maritime issues, the war provided the white settlers on the southern frontier the opportunity to overcome Native American resistance to a settlement, undermine British support of the Native American tribes, and pry 
Florida from the Spanish. Jackson immediately offered to raise volunteers for the war, but he was not called to duty until after the U.S. military was repeatedly defeated in the American Northwest. After these defeats in January 1813, Jackson enlisted over 2,000 volunteers who were ordered to head to New Orleans to defend against a British attack. When his forces arrived at Natchez, they were ordered to halt by General Wilkinson, the commander at New Orleans, and the man Jackson accused of treason after the Burr adventure. Interesting turn. A little later, Jackson received a letter from the Secretary of War, John Armstrong, stating that his volunteers were not needed and that they were to hand over any supplies to Wilkinson and disband. Jackson refused to disband his troops and said he led them on the difficult march back to, Na back to Nashville, earning the nickname Hickory or Old Hickory for his toughness, because when he would march with his troops, <clears throat> he would, uh, he well, he used an Old Hickory stick, essentially, to walk, but he also used that to beat people with, and um, rather than, walk, than riding on horseback like the other officers, he was... I mean, this harkens back to the Napoleon being on the ground with his troops. He would walk with his men. Points, Jackson. I mean, look, the thing is, it's that's to me, that's cool, you know. And we'll get to the, the symbolism more as we go on, but I think that symbolically probably helps morale to just see that, like, his head doesn't have to be like 10 feet above you, it can be up of level. Just kind of food for thought for anybody out there commanding a militia through Tennessee. Um, so after returning to Nashville, Jackson and one of his colonies, our colonies, colonels, John Coffey, got into a street brawl over honor with the brothers Jesse and Thomas Hart Benton. Nobody was killed, but Jackson received a gunshot in the shoulder that nearly killed him. In fact, during all this kerfuffle, he would write letters to his wife, Rachel, and I thought this was weird. He would send pieces of bone he pulled out of his arm. <laughs> Back to <What? laughs> Like, here, baby, take some of my bones and make a little sculpture of me for yourself. I don't know. It's fucking That's weird, weird man. Shit. It's 1806 romance. That's weird, man. It's just like that Van Gogh shit. People are weird, man. And marrying 14-year-olds are dumb. Um, Jackson had not fully recovered from his wounds when Governor Willie Blount called out the militia in September 1813 following the August Fort Mims massacre. The Red Sticks, a Confederate faction that had allied with the Tecumseh, a Shawnee chief who was fighting with the British against the United States killed about 250 militiamen and civilians at Fort Mims in retaliation for an ambush by American militia at Burnt Corn Creek. If there's one thing you don't want Jackson to see, it's Indians killing Americans' militia because, as we'll see, this escalates badly. Jackson's objective was to destroy the Red Sticks. He headed south for Fayetteville, Tennessee in October with 2,500 militia establishing Fort Strother as his supply base. He sent his cavalry under General Coffee ahead of the uh, main force, destroying Red Stick villages and capturing supplies. Like I said, this is, this is not good. 
Um, Jackson's army was reinforced by further recruitment and the addition of a regular army unit, the 39th U.S. Infantry Regiment. The combined force of 3,000 men, including Cherokee, Choctaw, and Creek allies, attacked a red stick fort at Horseshoe Bend on the Talpaloosa River, which was manned by about 1,000 men. The red sticks were overwhelmed and massacred. Almost all their warriors were killed and nearly... 300 women and children were taken prisoner and distributed to Jackson's Native American allies. The victory broke the power of the Red Sticks. Jackson continued his scorched-earth campaign of burning villages, destroying supplies, and starving Red Stick women and children. The campaign ended when William Weatherford, the Red Stick leader, surrendered, although some Red Sticks fled to East Florida. And I was reading an account about this battle. There's this guy, like a afterwards after the battle's done and it's just like like literally scorched earth that's taken from accounts and he went to the Talpalooza River to refill his canteen and it, it like the river was just red like there was just blood in it everywhere and people would just take kids and um or women on June 8th, Jackson was appointed a brigadier general in the United States Army and 10 days later was made a brevet major general with command of the 7th Military District, which include Tennessee, Louisiana, the Mississippi Territory, and the Muskegee Creek Confederacy. With President James Madison's approval, Jackson imposed the Treaty of Fort Jackson. The treaty required all Creek, including those who had remained allies, to surrender 23 million acres of land to the U.S., Jackson then turned his attention to the British and Spanish. He moved to his forces to Mobile in Alabama in August, accused the Spanish governor of West Florida, Mateo Gonzalez Manrique, of arming the Red Sticks and threatening to attack. The governor responded by inviting the British to land at Pensacola to defend it, which violated Spanish neutrality. The British attempted to capture Mobile, but their invasion fleet was repulsed at Fort Boyer. Jackson then invaded Florida, defeating the Spanish and British forces at the Battle of Pensacola on November 7th. Afterwards, the Spanish surrendered, and the British withdrew. Weeks later, Jackson learned that the British were planning an attack on New Orleans, which was the gateway to the lower Mississippi River in control of the American West. He evacuated Pensacola and strengthened the garrison at Mobile and led his troops to New Orleans. You ever been to New Orleans? No. You ever wanted to? Sorry, man. You, this friggin' Zoom keeps freezing up on me, and I'm trying to follow what uh, you're saying. Oh, it's okay. Um, so, yeah, if I seem a little, like, behind, I, I'm like, is this thing <laughs> catching up? Like, it's really, really annoying. I'm um, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I've never been to New Orleans. I... I I'd like to go, I think. I'm taking the... Really I'm, I'm going there next year. Really? Mm-hmm. You can get some gumbo. <laughs> what are you... What the, what's taking you down there? I just always wanted to go. Yeah. Well, there you go. I'm going out to... I, I would like to go to uh, Jazz Fest. If I were to go to New Orleans, I'd want to... Uh, Planet around Jazz Fest. That's a massive, 
massive festival. Yeah. A lot of, and, and like every musician you could think of. Well, I'm not a musician, so I'm just going to have to. Oh, stop it. Brad Dad, Guitar Dad. Guitar Dad. Um, no, that sounds great. I'll have to Google some info. Um, the British arrived in New Orleans in mid-December. Admiral Alexander Cochran was the overall commander of the operations. General Edward Packman commanded the army of 10,000 soldiers, many of whom had served in the Napoleonic Wars. Like I said, they had that war boner going, so like, that's it! Hut, hut, men! But, I mean, they get here, and it just turns into an all-out, like, rogues gallery of, of adversaries they, they're not prepared for. And these guys in their... their prim red and white uniforms with like polished buttons like i said you got davy crockett you got wild animals and fucking fire breathing dragons and fucking the ninja turtles running around you can't keep up so they you know new orleans was a huge victory and like i said jackson's victory made him a national hero and on february 27th night 18 1815, he was given the thanks of Congress and awarded a Congressional Gold Medal. Through the Treaty of Ghent, had been signed in December 1814, before the Battle of New Orleans was fought, Jackson's victory assured that the U.S. control of the region between Mobile and New Orleans would not be effectively contested by European powers. This control allowed the American government to ignore one of the articles in the treaty, which would have returned the Creek lands taken in the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Following the war, Jackson remained in command of troops in the southern half of the U.S. and was permitted to make his headquarters at the Hermitage, which is nice for him and probably nice for his wife, Rachel. He'd stop sending her fucking bones in the mail and actually give her the bone, if you know what I'm saying. Jackson continued to displace, although she couldn't have babies. Forgot to mention that. They wanted to have babies, but they couldn't. Uh, despite res- resistance from Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford, he signed five treaties between 1816 and 1820 in which the Creek, Choctaw, Cherokee, and Chickasaw ceded tens of millions of acres of land to the U.S. This included, these included the Treaty of Tuscaloosa and the Treaty of Doak's Stand. Jackson soon became embroiled in conflict in the Floridas. The former British post at Prospect Bluff which became known to Americans as the Negro Fort, remained occupied by more than a thousand former soldiers of the British Royal and Colonial Marines, escaped slaves, and various indigenous peoples. It had become a uh, magnet for escapees and was seen as a threat to the property rights of American enslavers, even a potential source of insurrection by enslaved people. Jackson ordered Colonel Duncan Clinch to captured the fort in July 1816. He destroyed it and killed many of the garrisons. Some survivors were enslaved while others fled into the wilderness of Florida. Goddamn. There was also a story basically that said at one point part of his army tried to desert and he literally looked at the infantrymen and just like pointed guns at him and was like, um, if they try to run away, shoot them. And then also stood in front of the cannons, like 
in the guns, which is just like maybe his fucking like tapeworm was telling him what to do and how he needed to get off this plane of existence. But somehow it worked. Like he literally could talk a militia into following his orders. And that, I mean, say what you will about him, but that's top tier leadership at least in my book, to be able to, to get everybody to follow your lead. Um, in addition, yeah. white settlers were in constant conflict with Native American people collectively known as the Seminoles, who straddled the border between the U.S. and Florida. In December 1817, Secretary of War John C. Calhoun initiated the first Seminole War by ordering Jackson to lead a campaign with full power to conduct the war as he may think best. Which sounds like take no prisoners. Jackson believed the best way to do this was to seize Florida from Spain once and for all. Before departing, Jackson wrote to President James Monroe, quote, Let it be signified to me through any channel that the possession of the Floridas would be desirable to the United States, and in 60 days it will be accomplished. Damn! Sounds like fighting words, Jackson. Yeah, he was ready for it. Jackson invaded Florida, captured the Spanish fort of St. Mark's, and occupied Pensacola. Seminole and Spanish resistance was effectively ended by May 1818. He also captured two British agents, Robert Ambrister and Alexander Arbuthnot. These fucking British names. Go home. Stop. Or fucking change your name to Dave Boone. These fucking weird... They need to learn how to speak English, those fucking Brits. <laughs> They do. Well, then they go back home and they're like, mm, I'm going to have some pudding. I'm in Cambershire. <laughs> we love our UK listeners. You're our second biggest demographic. But we do. We love you guys. And I have fucking beans and toast for breakfast. <laughs> Why does it smell like shit in Britain? I don't know. <clears throat> Just dining on beans, toast, and I tea. Haggis. <laughs> Oh boy. Haggis. <clears throat> Nasty. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, my Mecca to visit would definitely be London. Like to see all the old timey like history stuff in, in the UK. I mean I You've never been to London? No. Huh. No, I literally I went through Heathrow one time, but it was just to like transfer to another plane. Um I went to London for like was it a week or two? Two weeks. I went to London for like five days and then went to Paris for five days and then I came back to London for five days. It's like a two week trip. <clears throat> I stayed in East Coast. If right, you're uh, right next to you're Brown Pant <laughs> and took the underground into town. The only mind thing the, that dis- mind the gap. Yeah. The only thing that disparages me about going to the UK or going to London is how expensive I've heard it is. But, it's I don't pro- know. It's pro- the, the exchange rate's not so bad now. <clears throat> Five, ten years ago, it was like, a pound was like double the worth of a dollar, so. Like, if you go buy a five-pound pint, you're spending basically ten bucks on a beer. No. If I want to spend warm. Ten, 10 bucks on a beer, I'll just go to a Tigers game. Um, 
Anyway, so Calhoun yeah. wanted him. Okay, so after a brief trial, Jackson ex- executed both of them, causing a diplomatic incident with the British. That was when he captured the British agents and he, he had them executed. Jackson's actions polarized Monroe's uh, cabinet. The occupied territories were returned to Spain. Calhoun wanted him censured by violating the Constitution since the U.S. had not declared war on Spain. Secretary of State John Quincy Adams defended him as he thought Jackson's occupation of Pensacola would lead Spain to South Florida, which Spain did in the Adams-Onus Treaty of 1819. In February 1819, a congressional investigation exonerated Jackson, and his his victory was instrumental in convincing the Seminoles to sign the Treaty of Moultrie Moultrie Creek in 1823, which surrendered much of their land in Florida. All this guy did was uh, take land. Well, he took land and he fucking strong-armed Indians. I mean, not even strong arm. He just kind of raped and pillaged them. I'm gonna grab something to drink. Why don't you talk about um, all the things? <laughs> I need a. I need what? some. I need. To, I need to grab something out of my fridge. Why don't you talk about? Um, do you know anything about um, what? What's the most prominent Indians that live in your area? <clears throat> the Oneidas. I live on Oneida territory. It's we've discussed this. I live in the middle of central New York. It's all uh, what used to be Iroquois Confederacy uh, land, I suppose. And, and uh, the Oneidas <clears throat> control or well, you know, it's just like everywhere around here is Oneida. I think I think federally, I don't know how it works. Like, like I own my property or whatever. I'm on the books. I think federally, I'm on Oneida land. I don't know how it works, but the Oneidas have a lot of uh, power and influence in this area. The Onondagas live, uh, you know, Syracuse, Onondaga County. Um, That's uh, not as big of a tribe as the Oneidas, not nearly as much, you know, money and influence. And then, you know, Mohawks. Are to the east, more like Utica, Mohawk Valley area. But yeah, like the Oneidas, they man, they build. They're, they're just they build everything around here. <clears throat> like we don't we don't have a lot of new construction, uh, but the Oneidas, they're just always building stuff. That's cool. You've been to the casino. You've been to the casino. Down That's here. true. You saw it. That's true. They got four. Cas- Three or four casinos. I think they have four casinos. Turning Stone's the biggest. But, I mean, they're just constantly building. And, you know, they bring a lot of entertainment to the area. Uh, there's always concerts and things to go to. And, uh, you know, obviously entertainment and um, golf. And it just, I think they do a lot of, a lot of good around here. And they've gotten a bad, you know. I've seen it growing up, you know. I see all the signs, you know, all the time, you know. Cause Even now? Not so much now, but growing up, I always saw, like, signs about taxing the Oneidas and whatnot because they don't pay 
state taxes and whatnot. You shouldn't have to. Yeah, well, something like that. <clears throat> but yeah, they they thousands and thousands of people work for them, uh, and um, like I said, they're just constantly building all th- all sorts of stuff. So. Well, that's been your Indian Minute with Adam. I'm glad we talked about that. Uh, <laughs> sorry. All right, so presidential aspirations. The panic of 1819, the United States' first prolonged financial depression caused Congress to reduce the military size and abolish Jackson's generalship. In compensation, Monroe made him the first territorial governor of Florida because no one wanted to fire this guy. In fact, if we haven't mentioned it, this guy's got a hot temper. Dueling all the time, drooling all the time, shitting all the time. Got his tapeworm so he's so thin. His fucking wife won't have babies. He's beating people, old hickory style. They called him that because he was tough like hickory. Just saying. He served as the governor for two months, returning to the hermitage in ill health. I wonder why. So he also, he was, it was probably one of those things where they didn't know what to do with him because nobody wanted to tell him he was done being general. So they're like, you're governor now. And he's like, what? Okay. I don't know what that means. I'm full of piss and vinegar. Um, but he got ill. During his convalescence, Jackson, who had been a Freemason since at least 1798, became the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Tennessee for 1822 to 1823. Around this time, he also completed negotiations for Tennessee to purchase Chickasaw lands. This became known as the Jackson Purchase. Jackson, Overton, and other colleague had speculated in some of the land and used their portion to found the town of Memphis, which is a place that I will be visiting on my way to New Orleans. In 1822, Jackson agreed to run in the 1824 presidential election, and he was nominated by the Tennessee legislature in July. At the time, the Federalist Party had collapsed, and there were four major contenders for the Democratic-Republican Party nomination. William Crawford, John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, and John C. Calhoun. Jackson was intended to be a stalking horse candidate to prevent Tennessee's electoral votes from going to Crawford, who was seen as a Washington insider. So, there's a fucking ghost in here. I think it's Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jack- Jackson's ghost. It's like, hey, calm down. Tell this, tell this story right. <laughs> Sorry. A lot of this came from Wikipedia. My bad. But... Jackson was intended to be a stalking horse candidate. Like I said, he benefited from the expansion of suffrage among white males that followed the conclusion of the War of 1812. They saw him as a hero. Anytime he, like, especially with veterans and people, had there was more of an American pride after the War, War of 1812 and the Battle of New Orleans. Like, like I said, the, the first, like, print printouts, like, first media was a lot of it portrayed Andrew Jackson as this big victorious leader, you know, and look, 
if I see an image of Batman beating up bad guys, I want to be like Batman and stop the bad guys. And at the time, there that was like pre pre that. But the beginning of it, what would become a powerhouse when it comes to political maneuvers when it came to the media. Um, he was also promoted as an outsider who stood for all the people blaming banks for the country's depression. And we'll get into banks. But during his presidential candidacy, Jackson reluctantly ran for one of Tennessee's U.S. Senate seats. Jackson's political managers, William Berkeley Lewis and John Eaton convinced him that he needed to defeat incumbent John Williams, who opposed him. The legislature elected Jackson in October 1823. Was attentive to his senatorial duties, he was appointed chairman of the Committee of Military Affairs, but avoided debate or initiating legislation. He used his time in the Senate to form alliances and make peace with old adversaries. Eaton continued to campaign for Jackson's presidency, updating his biography, and writing a series of widely circulated pseudonymous letters that portrayed Jackson as a champion of Republican liberty. This Eaton guy uh, is going to become a powerful figure in Jackson's life, and you'll see why. But um, like I said before, he was loyal to his close friends. And Eaton is definitely going to become one of them. Democratic-Republican presidential nominees had historically been chosen by informal congressional nominating caucuses. In 1824, most of the Democratic-Republicans in Congress boycotted the caucus, and the power to choose nominees was shifting to state nominating committees and legislatures. Jackson was nominated by a Pennsylvania convention, making him not merely a regional candidate, but the leading national contender. He was a contender. So... What do you think about the political structure at this time? It's pretty infantile. I mean, we're he's we're heading into him being the seventh president of the United States of America. Are you shocked this worked in any way, or are you not surprised? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm not surprised the way it used to be. Um, I think we might have lightly touched on this in a previous episode, but like this is before primaries existed, so. Like, we didn't get to choose the nominees for office. They were usually, you know, well, like you said, they were appointed by state legislatures and whatnot. But, um, you know, the, the the voters didn't have any choice in the nominee. They had a choice once they were candidates and whatnot. <clears throat> but um, the people were just kind of at the will of the legislatures at the time. Yeah. And that's an interesting interesting way you know to to see it from today's lens because if you know the majority of the legislatures in the united states are you know red you know republican leaning i I would say probably the the slight majority and so you would see um you know you would see a lot more you know, red leaning candidates coming up for, you know, elections and stuff like that. Um, it would be, I don't know where I'm going with this thought, but it's just, it's just a lot different. We, you know, pre primaries, you know, like there wasn't a lot of political, uh, you know, parties. They were factions of the Democratic Republican Party. There wasn't like, 
Democrats, Republicans, all the stuff, all these little parties here and there, like the Whigs and, you know, the Federalists and whatnot, they all kind of like fell off the map for a long time, but it was a completely different <clears throat> time, the way candidates, nominees worked. And, you know, obviously, you know, some of this stuff uh, made its way into the Constitution and changed the way, you know, we vote and who can vote and I've got a prediction for 2024, the resurgence of the Whig Party. <laughs> uh, yeah, possible. You never know. <clears throat> Just some highfalutin, powdered wig wearing. <laughs> I've got some legislation I'd like to pass. It says... I get the stuffiest, biggest wig in the county. All right, so the in the presidential election, Jackson won a 42% of the popular vote. More importantly, he won a plurality of electoral votes, receiving 99 votes from states in the Southwest and Mid-Atlantic. He was the only candidate to win states outside of his regional base. Adams, John Quincy Adams, dominated New England, Crawford won Virginia and Georgia, and Clay took... Well, three Western straits. Because no candidate had a majority of the 131 electoral votes, the House of Representatives held a uh, contingent election under the terms of the 12th Amendment. The amendment specifies that only the top three electoral vote winners are eligible to be elected by the House, so Clay was eliminated from contention. Clay, who was also Speaker of the House and presided over the election's res resolution saw a Jackson presidency as a disaster for the country. Clay threw his support behind John Quincy Adams, who won the contingent election on the first ballot. Adams appointed Clay as a secretary of state, leading supporters of Jackson to accuse Clay and Adams of having struck a corrupt bargain. In fact, that was hot press at the time. They were like, they are destroying our democracy. Look at this picture of Adams. His whole look at he's he's a piece of shit. He's a nerd. And then congressional session concluded. Jackson resigned his Senate seat and returned to Tennessee. And uh, back to the Hermitage. Which yeah, is this whole uh, <clears throat> before you move on. The, no, the, go ahead. This whole the the eighteen twenty four election was. <clears throat> really interesting to read about because it was the first time that I think um, like this whole idea of a rigged election uh, became a prominent theme in American politics and um, man I've never heard that before yeah it's, uh, it's, it's funny. rigged uh, oh, well, <clears throat> sorry there's a ghost in here um, yeah dude I, I mean it, he, he, there is a, a slight point Jackson had to make, you know, because he did <clears throat> win the the plurality of popular and electoral votes. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I get that, but you know, they they did it by the Twelfth Amendment, and then there was the the deal, the corrupt bargain <clears throat> that was made. And uh, well, that's the but that's but, but this is what due process and in time in in and being patient will pay off though because them doing that that's their decision that's not jackson's and he's only gonna get more notoriety being 
not given that seat or not being, you know, being elected. Because I don't want to be John Quincy Adams in that moment or Clay. Like, they're both in the hot seat. Jackson comes out looking like a hero regardless because he's a war hero and it looks like the government's corrupt. So the common man is literally going to put on his, you know, Battle of New Orleans shirt and be like, fuck this. You know, and the political landscape at the time essentially knows that Jackson has to be in some... I mean, they can throw all the hot goss out there. They would be like, Rachel was once married once, and and I think she wants a... a I think she... I think she sleeps... She sleeps with other, other soldiers, too, or whatever. Like, maybe make up whatever you want to. At the time, I mean, it was like... Scandal was was petty, and we'll get into that more as we get to the uh, the actual proper election in 1828. Uh, hey, yeah, give me two seconds. Talk about your uh, Native American story in Michigan while I go into the bathroom for a second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll be right back. The uh, so um, yeah so in Michigan. Um, there are Indians. Um, the the Ad- Ottawa, the um, the in the Upper Peninsula, we have the La Via Desert Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians. We have the um, Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. We have the Bay Mills Indian Community, the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians, the Saginaw Chippewa Indian Tribe. Uh, These are Michigan's federally recognized Indian tribes. We have also the Pakagon Band of Potawatomi Indians and the Natawasipi Huron Band of Potawatomi Indians. Also, check out Gun Lake Casino. It's great. And that's been Ryan's minute about the local Michigan Indians. Now, after the election, Jackson supporters formed a new party to undermine Adams and ensured he served only one term. Adams' presidency went poorly, and Adams' behavior undermined it. He was perceived as an intellectual elite who ignored the needs of the populace. Again, bit of a nerd. Um... The elite, the Washington elite, they don't care about the, the little guy. But I'm pretty sure John Quincy Adams literally died on the floor of Congress because he was always literally doing paperwork or like trying to get things done. You might want to Google yeah. that if you have a second. I'm pretty sure John Quincy Adams died literally on Congress floor. Um, really? In his first annual message to Congress, Adams stated that we are... We are, we, we are, st- we are palsied by the will of our con- constituents. Interesting word, which Palsy. was false. Palsied. 
palsy. Sorry, you're trying to say by the will of our constituents, constituents, which was interpreted as his being against representative democracy. Jackson responded by championing the needs of ordinary citizens and declaring that the voice of the people must be heard. I got, I got to say points, uh, Jackson there. Jackson was nominated for president by the Tennessee legislature in October 1825, more than three years before the 1828 election. He gained powerful supporters in both the South and North, including Calhoun, who became Jackson's vice presidential running mate, and New York Senator Martin Van Buren. Meanwhile, Adams' support from the southern states was eroded when he signed a tax on European imports, the Tariff of 1828 which was called the Tariff of Abominations by opponents into law. Jackson's victory in the presidential race was overwhelming. He won 56% of the popular vote and 68% of the electoral vote. The election ended the one-party system that had formed during the era of good feelings as Jackson's supporters coalesced into the Democratic Party and the various groups who did not support him eventually formed the Whig Party, or the Jacksonian Democrats. Now, I know you said he didn't invent the Democratic Party, but he was pretty important to it. I guess you could have said Calhoun or Van Buren invented, or were also just as important. I think I, I think the the idea of the Democratic Party definitely originated uh, with Jackson the rise of Jackson. Yeah, definitely. The political campaign was dominated by the personal abuse that partisans flung at both candidates. Now, this is where mudslinging really started. Jackson was accused of being the son of an English prostitute and a mulatto. Interesting. And he was labeled a slave trader who trafficked in human flesh. A series of pamphlets known as the Coffin Handbills accused him of having murdered 18 white men, including the soldiers he had executed for desertion and alleging that he had stabbed a man in the back with his cane. They stated that he had intentionally massacred Native American women and children at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, ate the bodies of Native Americans he killed in battle, and threatened to cut off the ears of congressmen who questioned his behavior during the First Seminole War. Now, I will mention, one of the ways they accounted for the the bodies um, in the Talapalooza battle with the River of Blood was they would cut off the noses or cut off a part of the nose to keep track of how many had died. Just a little, just a little, just a little war numbers, how you keep track, you know. Jackson and Rachel were accused of adultery for living together before a divorce was finalized, and Rachel heard about the accusation. She had been under stress throughout the election, and just as Jackson was preparing to head to Washington for his inauguration, she felt pains in her arm and chest and felt ill. She did not live to see her husband become president, dying of a stroke or heart attack a few days later. Jackson believed that the abuse from Adam's supporters had hastened her death, stating at her funeral, quote, May God Almighty forgive her murderers, as I know she forgave them, I never can. Boom! And that he is was, true. Uh, she was a was- deep, deeply religious woman, and she couldn't believe that she was... I mean, we're talking like 
at this point, like 20, 30 years before a marriage so long ago, a different life. Go ahead. What? Nah, I was just going to say he, he was uh, <clears throat> really defensive uh, of his wife and his relationship with, with Rachel. He was, and that's going to play a part in this first big scandal that's going to come out here. But um, I will say this. Points Jackson on that. I think um, I'm I'm always going to side or be more sympathetic to somebody who loves their partner unconditionally and will stand by them. True. So... Jackson arrived in Washington on February 11th and began forming his cabinet. He chose Van Buren as Secretary of State, John Eaton as Secretary of War, Samuel D. Ingham as Secretary of Treasury, John Branch as Secretary of Navy, John Berrien as Attorney General, and William T. Berry as Postmaster General. Jackson was inaugurated on March 4th, 1829. Adams, who, had embittered, who was embittered by def- his defeat, refused to attend. Interesting. Jackson mean that (laughs) before. Yeah, I was gonna say there's there's quite a few of those like oh shit they did that back then too. Uh, go on. Jackson became the first president-elect to take the oath of office in the East Portico of the U.S. Capitol. His in his inaugural address, he promised to protect the sovereignty of the states, respect the limits of the presidency, reform the government by removing disloyal or incompetent appointees, and observe a fair policy toward Native Americans. Jackson invited the public to the White House, which was promptly overrun by well-wishers who caused minor damage to his furnishings. The spectacle earned him the nickname King Mob. And that was the thing. Like I said, we, 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 we've, we've hit on this before and we will say it again here. I mean, he was the populist president. He, his, his numbers indicate the same. He, people loved him just like Teddy Roosevelt had the same. And at the time, it, it still, he still was able to carry on the image of him being like the pick yourself up by the bootstraps type president. And, and in a lot of ways, his dueling and his aggressive nature worked for him, especially in a world that had just survived a revolutionary war in the War of 1812. I think those things all play their own parts in in, in raising and, and influencing, say, the imaginations of the public. So when he said, this is the people's house, so let them let them be merry you know he was suffering at the time and you have to call that into into thought when you think of him at this time because his wife had just died and she was like legitimately the love of his life so much so that he kept a little uh like wooden statue doll or something of her that he would like talk to at night before he went to bed like and when he was at the Hermitage, every night before he would go to bed, he would go out to her gravesite on the property, which is, you know, romantic. It's sweet. I mean, the doll thing's a little weird, but, like, I guess it's cool if if that's what you need to get through the pain. Um, he loved her unconditionally, and she died, and he saw Quincy Adams and all the other 
naysayers as the villains. You know, the the career the public voted him into had essentially killed the person he was the closest to. And that anger just it will it doesn't diminish and it won't and it informs a lot of who he is. Some say if she had been alive and been the first lady with uh, Andrew Jackson, that maybe he would have been a little softer in some of his decision makings, and that's something you can speculate, but it didn't happen that way. Jackson believed that Adams' administration had been corrupt, and he initiated investigation into all executive departments. These investigations revealed that 280000 which is the equivalent to $7.7 million in 2022, was stolen from the Treasury. They also resulted in a reduction in cost to the Department of the Navy, saving $1 million, which is the equivalent of $27 $0.5 million in 2022, Jackson asked Congress to tighten laws on embezzlement and tax evasion, and he pushed for an improved government accounting system. Jackson implemented a principle he called rotation in office. The previous custom had been for the president to leave the existing appointees in office, replacing them through attrition. Jackson enforced the Tenure of Office Act and 1820 law that limited office tenure authorized the president to remove current office holders and appoint new ones. During his first year in office, he removed about 10% of all federal employees and replaced them with loyal Democrats. Jackson argued that rotation in office reduced corruption by making office holders responsible to the popular will, but it functioned as a political patronage and became known as the spoils system. Interesting. He fired a lot of people. Yeah. So theoretically it's a good idea. But in practice it wasn't probably the best way to handle, you know, the bureaucracy of the United States government. You know, it's uh, the turnover rate when you start getting comfortable in a job and being able to do it efficiently and professionally. You know, and you lose that because you got another president and you got some new guy who has to fumble and bumble his way around for two or three or four years. Um, it led to a lot of incompetency in the government. And uh, I don't think that it was the, the, the first time that a president had replaced like certain employees, but I think to the scale that it was done, is, that's why he gets this distinction. You know, as being the, you know, the uh, the spoil system guy. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, he. I understand. I understand where he's coming from, but I I think you're totally right. You know, it's kind of like when we get a president that we in mass agree. On and want to see, you know, things that they proposed actually come to fruition. You're right. It does, very rarely does it become an immediate turn, immediate, like, things get done. Yeah, it, it takes, takes time. time. Government, and government, you know, being a you know, being somebody who works in government, mm-hmm. and you too, mm-hmm. like, you know how slow things can move. So when you 
refresh bodies every couple of years. Um, whether it was 10% or more, it's just, you know, there's a lot of catching up to do. And uh, mm -hmm. from the studying that I've done, not just for this podcast, but in my past, you know, educational career, you know, it just uh, it didn't work out the way it was supposed to. <clears throat> On to the scandal, the hot goss, the TMZ 1828 in the Petticoat Affair. Sounds like a Richard Greer movie. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Technical difficulties. No issues. Fucking Zoom. Yeah. All right. It zoomed away my computer screen. We figured out we're going to do two parts on this, though, because this is just... There's a lot to unpack here, and I am enjoying talking to my friends, so... Uh, Subscribe, like, five stars, and you'll get more two-parters with history bros, history dads. And uh, we're going to talk about the Petticoat Affair, which I think is actually super fascinating. And it's it's kind of like the Real Housewives of the White House or whatever. As I mentioned, his buddy Eaton, John Eaton, who had taken a shine to a local Franklin boarding house a lady serving up suds to the single single man at the time a woman named Margaret she uh, she basically they called it the Eaton affair or the petticoat affair and it was scandalous because like Rachel Jackson, she was accused of adultery because she and Eaton had been close before her first husband, John Timberlake, had died, who was also a serviceman who died at sea. And as was the custom at the time, you were supposed to wait a year as a widow before you even considered getting married to somebody, and they got married nine months later. And the rumor was that the reason that he had died at Seed was because he found out that his wife is cheating on him with this Eaton character. Um, with the exception of Barry, Barry's wife, Catherine, the cabinet members' wives followed the lead of Vice President Calhoun's wife, Floride. F-L-O-R-I-D-E. Floride? <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to say that. <laughs> I don't know if it was chloride or fluoride. Well, this fluoride. is my beautiful wife, Plaque, and this is our <laughs> this is our young daughter, Cavity. Low, low rider, Florida mm. Georgia line. I don't know how to say it. And maybe it's Florida. Maybe that was the inspiration for the name. Florida. How's Fl that? Put a couple accent marks on the <laughs> I and the E. Florida. Maybe. Uh, but but at this time, I said Real Housewives of the of D.C. or White House. It's because all the socialite gatherings at the time were organized by powerful political leaders' wives. So like any time 
agreements had to be made anytime like they needed to get things done part of that was by having these wives host these big galas and you did not turn down an invitation when when somebody sent out the facebook invite for all the local girls to get together for tea and crumpets and gossip like bitches be showing up and when the vice president's wife is like fuck that and also i didn't mention this but because andrew jackson's wife died his niece was actually given the title of first lady of the white house and she was also against it so the two of them were like working against him um though jackson defended margaret because her presence um she he he knew eaton like they would go to this franklin um, boarding house, you know, restaurant slash bar, whatever you want to call it. And like, he called her like the most intelligent little woman he'd ever met. Like he was very fond of her. And I think because of the similar situation he had had with his wife, Rachel, who had passed at the time, he, he saw a kinship in the two of them, you know, and he did not back down. Like, he was like, fuck this. Like, invite everybody. Like, she's cool. She's She shouldn't be treated like this. But this scandal, like, it caused so many political headaches for him. Like, this, this went for years. I mean, this was, like, essentially, like, Monica Lewinsky, but, like, 1828. Um, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. But it's, I mean, that's to give somebody who's listening who is of our age range, you know, some context, but essentially like, you know, we don't, it's sad because when you read stuff like this about this type of scandal, it just kind of reminds you that like people are just judgy fucking nerds that need to get more hobbies start a fucking podcast stop you know like do 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 your own like don't waste energy in useless nonsense and like i said he defended margaret jackson did her presence split the cabinet which had been so ineffective that he rarely called it into session and the ongoing disagreement led to its disillusion in the spring of 1831 jackson demanded the resignations of all the cabinet members except barry who would resign in 1835 when a congressional investigation revealed his mismanagement of the post office. He was the postmaster. Jackson tried to compensate Van Buren by appointing him the minister to Great Britain, but Calhoun blocked the nomination with a tie-breaking vote against it. Van Buren, along with newspaper editors Amos Kendall and Francis Breston Blair, would become regular participants in Jackson's kitchen cabinet, an unofficial varying group of advisors that Jackson turned to for decision-making even after he had formed a new official cabinet. I should mention that Martin Van Buren was actually quite fond of Margaret Eaton. And uh, one could say that maybe that paid off for him because Calhoun kind of went into obscurity and wouldn't be nominated as his VP in the second run for president. And Van Buren essentially becomes, after vice president, an ex-president. So be nice to people. Don't be a fucking asshole. Who gives a fuck who other people fuck at the end of the day? 
shut the fuck up, do your thing, listen to some good music. I guess at the time that would have been the sound of a mule kicking something. Whatever. Just saying. I should add as an addendum, in case you're wondering about Miss Eaton, she lived a long life with her husband, who did unfortunately pass away. And then afterwards, she was 59, 59 or 60, and she ended up meeting a um, young Italian dance instructor who taught her granddaughter how to dance, and the two of them ran off together. And then, after three or four years of of their marriage, because she got married a third time to this Italian dance instructor, he ran away with the granddaughter. And unfortunately... Yeah. So that flip-flopped on her. And then she sadly was extorted from this Italian dance instructor to the point where she died in a home penniless in her 70s. And that was the end of Peggy Eaton, who was dramatized in 1930s film by Joan Crawford. I'm not reading this off of anything. I just remember this off the top of my head. But in case you want to know, research or look up anything online, Google the Peggy Eaton affair. There's more details to it, but it's an interesting early scandal that happened in the White House during a time when things were petty, a.k.a. petticoat affair, if you will. But that's going to be the end for part one of Andrew Jackson. We're, we, we got through his early time. We got up into his presidency. We're going to get into the second term, the Indian removal, the Trail of Tears, the BS that happens afterwards, and really, we're going to end at his death, but also the end of the Jacksonian Democrats, or at least what those Democrats would be known as or known for. And that's been your yeah, part there's one. A, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot more to cover. Mm-hmm. I didn't uh, I didn't think that we would have to do two of these, but um. the, the the presidents. I mean, they're fascinating. They're interesting. I think we got a lot of good information out on this one. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of things that we we went through that I I mean, we talked about him being a drooler. Being uh, being aggressive, why he became known as Old Hickory, his dueling nature. I really was kind of taken aback by his affiliation with Aaron Burr, the vice president to Jefferson. Um, I don't know. I spend most of my time listening to history documentaries through my headphones while I deliver the mail. And so... Uh, when I when I hear this stuff, a lot of times I laugh because I just picture <laughs> the the chaos of the day, or or, or 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 I try to imagine what it would be like to to deal with with the the incredible stresses of the time. But I think overall, Andrew Jackson to me is one of the more fascinating U.S. presidents, specifically for kind of his place in history and kind of where it goes from here up into today. So if anything, if I'm going to give him any more points, I I did some minus and some pluses. If I'm going to give him any more points 
overall in this first episode, I'll say he's fascinating, but also troubled and incredibly vile in some ways that we'll get to. But that's been your part one. Danger Zone, do you have anything you want to say before we end this episode? Um, no. No, uh, let's do it again. Uh, we gotta get the, we gotta get through the rest of this. I got nothing to say, man. All right, it's always fun. I love doing this. It's fun stuff. I love doing it too, man. We're gonna keep on rolling. We got, got to cover Lincoln eventually. We got to cover the Civil War. We got to cover fucking World War One. We got to cover. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We got to cover fucking Truman. We got we got so many. We got Nixon. That's gonna blow my mind. He's a fascinating guy, actually, too. Similarly to Jackson, where it's like up, down, up, down, up, down, and then down, 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 up, 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 down, down. It's interesting. Interesting time. And trying very hard to not lean political here, but also just be like matter of fact but all these guys are worth checking out and doing your own research on but thanks for being this is why we do the history stuff so we can we can be a little bit uh, more aggressive one-sidedly or or give points here and there true current events current is current events is hard to get into because then you know you can get in trouble with the you know, historical shit. Like, nobody cares if we say Andrew Jackson was an asshole. No. No. Like, we're not going to get a, a letter, uh, an angry email from Andrew Jackson's great, 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 great granddaughter. It's like, yeah. Huffing and puffing in Tennessee. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. We'll be back with part two. We love you guys. Rate, review, subscribe, join the Discord, click the links in the description, and we'll see you next time on another episode. Have a great one, folks.
This has been a presentation of Beer City Media.